0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me, your host Caroline Partridge. In this, the first of an incredible two-part episode, I talk to master coach, speaker and mentor Alan Clenahans. Alan shares his extraordinary life story, charting his childhood in the racist and segregated South Africa of the 1960s and 70s through military service and the horrors of the Angolan Civil War to a life plagued with guilt and shame and inevitable alcohol and substance abuse. Please join me as we look at life through a different lens. Hello, Alan, and um, welcome to the Perception podcast. And Thank you so much for coming on to speak to us today. Thanks for having me, Caroline. I'm excited to be here. Okay, well, I'm excited to talk to you. So um, before we, we talk about what you... What you do now, your work, which you've described as um, what you do is that you lead people back to their own hearts, to to finding who they are in their authenticity. Um, Before we talk about that, I want to know about who you were, um, what kind of person you were before you started this work, and what was the catalyst that uh, the catalyst that made you realize that you needed to change your life?
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I'll keep it as short as possible. Um, You know, it's a truth that all all of us are affected and molded and programmed by the environments we grow up in as young children, because that's when we're most impressionable and we form our psychology by the time we're seven. By the time we're seven, we already have a belief system about ourselves. And unless we come across something that shifts us in a new direction, or we have some kind of tragic event that really causes us to really rethink our lives, or we go to an event that makes us think deeply on who we are and who we'd like to become, and we get some inspiration of some kind, most people will just keep living out of that paradigm that they've created in their earliest years, which is almost completely formed by the time you're seven. All your belief systems are already set in place. And unless you consciously go about changing them, you know, most people just end up living that life, you know, their entire lives, which is a real shame. Um and just like every other human being, I was you know programmed and you know um the 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 production or the product of my environments as a young boy. I grew up in South Africa, grew up in Durban I grew up next to a police station for the first six years of my life. I grew up in one of the toughest neighborhoods in my country and definitely the toughest neighborhood in my city at that time. Point Road was notoriously dangerous uh you know in the sixties and the seventies I was born in sixty six and From 66 to 72, the first six years of my life, I lived next door to Point Road Police Station. And Point Road was a long road. It's still a very long road now. It's not called Point Road anymore because when Mandela came out of prison and became the president of South Africa, they changed all the names um, of all the streets uh, in the cities around the country. However, if you go down that road, which still exists, it's a long road that leads from the city center and it runs along the coastline, parallel to the the coastline. It's not directly on the coastline. It's set back from the coastline. And it runs all the way down to the harbor mouth to the docks, right? And so I lived down that area as a young boy. And I'd often go walking down there with my nanny at the time. And I went to a crash further down Point Road to closer to the docks uh, from my home where I grew up as a young boy. And you know, you didn't want to be down there after 5 p.m in the evening. And uh, you know, down towards the end of Point Road close to the docks where all these dormitories, these massive dormitories and uh, the early hours of, of a monday morning 3:30 a.m. 4 a.m. 4:30 a.m. all these buses would come driving into the city from the outer suburbs where they would collect all these black men and bring them into the city for work and they would stay in these dormitories you know monday through thursday night and then friday after work they'd get paid they'd get on the buses go back to their families for the weekend and take the money they'd made back to their families and uh, that was normal right that was just normal existence in Africa, and these black men were working on the docks, on the rail yards, on the sugar terminals, on the container yards, etc. In the evenings, these men were drinking. You know, in the dormitories, there were often fights breaking out. And along the Point Road, you know, it was notorious for uh, prostitution, for drugs, for gangs. And uh, as I said, you didn't want to be down there after 5 p.m. in the evening, especially if you were white. And, uh, you know, growing up next to this police station, you know, this police station was responsible for mopping up the area of South Beach, which is a massive area including Point Road. And uh, we were situated right behind Addington Hospital, which is right on the beach. And South Beach was a big area. And uh, growing up in next to this police yard and playing in this courtyard in the afternoons after creche, uh, once I became, the first time I became aware of a man screaming in the yard next door over the wall, I looked towards the end of the courtyard. And, uh, you know, if I was standing in the courtyard uh, with my flat behind me, we lived on the ground floor of a three block building. If I looked to the left, that went out to the street. And to the right was the courtyard extended, you know, 50, 60, 75 feet. And um, along the far wall, there was a flower bed where I used to play with my cars. And I became aware aware of a man screaming in the yard next door. So I went over to the bins. I climbed on the bins, climbed on the wall and found a little gap in the wall and looked through that gap. Couldn't see a lot, but could see enough, right? Uh, To terrify me and traumatize me. And I watched a a black man get beaten, you know, severely you know and brutally by a white policeman with a shambok and a shambok is a indigenous uh it's a whip that's made by local people out of indigenous materials it's a Mm. long it's a long lethal weapon in the wrong hands it's a it's, it's it's basically a whip that is uh thick and tapers off to a very very thin edge at the far end and it's about two meters long and uh it's very common in south africa and uh yeah, so that was, um, you know, if, if in the wrong hands, that would just cleave your skin like hot knife to butter. And so, yeah, that was a traumatizing experience. And prior to that moment, I think I probably looked at policemen next yard, next, in the yard next door, in their beautiful, crisp uniforms, you know, their perfect, perfectly ironed uh, outfits and, you know, their, their brown leather holsters with a with pistol in the, in the holster and their shiny boots. And uh, probably would have revered them and thought, wow, you know, it must be cool to be wearing that uniform. As most little boys do, I think, but after that, I really felt unsafe, you know, and that was the feeling the current that was the the, the current energy that I felt you like know, the, you know, the energy that flowed through me from you know from my earliest time was I always felt unsafe, I always felt unsafe, and um you know I was always you had to be. Living living in South Africa as a young boy in the sixties and the seventies, you had to be awake. You know, you had to be aware. Not only as a young boy, as a human being, just as a normal person. Every, everyone was like on edge. You know, because it was brutal, and it was violent, and it was um, segregated, and it was racist. You know, and it was in your face. And uh, you know, I went to two private schools. I went to all boys schools, all white. And I remember the very first time a little black boy showed up at my school, I was a bit of an outsider because I was teased a lot. I was I was told I was ugly. I didn't really have any friends. I was always on the outside in the playground, you know, watching everyone else playing and being alone in the corner and just wishing I could join in the game, uh, but never having the confidence to do so. And then a black boy arrived at my school and then he was a loner. So we became friends and we got beaten up on a regular basis because he was black and because I was a white man who, hanging well, a white boy hanging out with a black kid. And I was called um, this terrible term that is, uh, you know, quite common in South Africa. if you. Especially in the seventies and the eighties, if you were, if you were somebody who was part of the movement to, you know, to help correct um, the the one-sidedness of South Africa, yeah. you know, if you were called, if you were, an, if you were an ANC supporter, you know, and you were called something really, really ugly, and uh, which I can't repeat here, which is now actually illegal in South Africa to use that term. Um, but that was my youth, you know. That was my upbringing. Uh, you know, bullied a lot. Uh, Just, you know, was rough. You know, it was tough. I lived in a tough neighborhood. At seven years of age, we moved away from that neighborhood. We moved to a a much better location. Um, It was an upgraded location. However, there was still a lot of violence in the park that we lived Mm -hmm. overlooking this big park. You know, tennis courts, bowling club, football field on the far side, playground for kids. It was a massive area. But we're we're away from the coastline now, slightly in, you know, on the other side of the city. Uh, But we could still see the harbor mouth. And I would play in that park every day after school and, and still be exposed to a lot of violence, you know. Violence yeah. was very common for me as a young boy. Uh, you know, I was around a lot of violence. I saw a lot of death um, from a young age. And, um, and then I went to boarding school at the age of 14. I was an academic, so my father sent me to boarding school to try and instill some discipline. A private school, cost a fortune. My parents never let me forget how much my schooling was costing me. It was costing them, I should say. And they used to say, you know, you have to work hard right because you need mm. you need to get a good education so you can get into university you got to get a good job they were old school and uh, my father was a strict disciplinarian and my mother had me when she was 41 in 1966 mm-hmm. which was pretty unheard of you know it was quite quite unusual actually they were on their second marriage which was also quite unusual because south africa was quite south africa is very conservative then you know and very very religious um which i only became aware of much later on in life even though i went to two christian schools uh, two to, to religious schools, which I had religious dogma shoved in my head from the age of four, mm. um, which I never really bought into. However, when I came out of, the, out of school at the age of 18, I didn't have the uh, university education. I didn't have the education to get into university because I wasn't an academic. And um, I went straight into the military. It was conscription. You know, it was compulsory at the time. So I went straight into the military. My father had been in the military, my my uncles, my cousins, my grandfathers, all the men in my family were military men and some of them had seen combat and my, my, my grandfather certainly had been in the war. My uncle flew for the RAF based out of Singapore. My father had been to war too. And um, yeah, my father put me on a train in January of 1986 and said, keep your head down, do what you told, come back alive. I said, wow, wow dad, bit traumatic. He said, just do it. And, um, you know, he said to me, don't be foolish. Just do what you told, stay alive. I said, Cool. And um, anyway, I went into the military, got trained extensively, you know, was very intense, mm-hmm. very tough. But I, I just, my attitude was, you know, I'm just going to do my best. And I I, I, I I joined this group of guys. We were all from Durban. We all connected on the train on the way up there. And we stayed friends throughout that two years. Some of us got divided off into different cores. But uh, there was a core group of us that stayed together and ended up actually, ended up going to Angola together. And um, in 19- 1987 uh you know throughout my time in the military i was exposed to you know some very severe and some very brutal violent environments um you know necklacing is a is, is, is necklacing is a term that's used in south africa it's 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 a, it's a what's the word i'm looking for it's an act of aggression violent aggression on another human being um so what to necklace someone means to put tires around them and set the tires a light mm. and watch somebody burn. And that was very common in South Africa. In fact, it was even in recent years, not very long ago, when there was xenophobia was taking place in South Africa in a big way and anybody from, you know, Zimbabwe or, uh, you know, Zambia or Swaziland or anybody that had come down from Northern Africa into South Africa looking for work, et cetera, suddenly were being attacked by local people and, and, and it was on the news and you could see people getting necklaced. And, you know, I experienced that firsthand in Cape Town, in Crossroads, in Crossroads uh, Township in 1986, you know, as a young, you know, barely 19. And um, and all we had to do was make sure that the rioting that was taking place, and the, the country was a state of emergency at that time. The president had declared a state of emergency, and we were as military, young military men, We we formed a barricade to prevent the rioting you know, moving across the road into the affluent suburbs, which are just over the road. In fact, if you go to Cape Town now and you fly into Cape Town, you fly over crossroads, you see all these shanty town, this this massive shanty town that spreads for miles Mm -hmm. in all directions. And there's there's well over, you know, well, I don't know what the figures are now, but I remember, you know, there's well over a million people living there in Squalor, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, you drive through that, you drive directly through that when you leave the airport to go into Cape Town. It's something you can't just dis- you can't you can't uh not not see, you know, mm. and uh, yeah, being there and seeing that, you know, was sobering, you know, to to say the least. And then in 87, we ended up in Angola after more training. I was then trained again. We were sent, my whole battalion was sent from from eight side, which is eight South African infantry camp in northern Cape, where I spent my first year, and then sent to fourth. South African infantry camp to be retrained again and mechanized infantry on six-wheel vehicles with a 20-millimeter cannon on top. And I was then trained with a patrol mortar pipe, a 60-millimeter mortar pipe and an RPG-7 rocket launcher. That was my weapon. And then one day we were told to, 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 uh, to go to a parade. We were called to parade, called to attention. And uh, the, the, the major came out and said, hey, we're going to Angola in five days' time. And um, oh. you've, got, you've, got, you've got one day to write a letter and to make a phone call, and then the phones line, phones will be cut, no more letters will be going out. You're not allowed to say where we're going. And um, and in fact, every letter that I sent home was redacted. You know, you could. my parents showed me there was black lines across all the letters I wrote home. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't even bother phoning home actually. I mean, I didn't speak to my parents much when I was in the army and I wasn't home much for mm-hmm. the whole two years, I was always deployed. So we got in these rattles and we drove up to Angola, 18 mile convoy for a week up to Angola. I remember we stopped at a shopping center once so we could go to the loo and, and buy some snacks. Mm. And I, I ran into a music shop and I thought, I've got to get some music, right? I'm going to be in Angola. I don't know how long I'm going to be there for I need something to listen to. Call me driving around the bush with nothing, nothing to listen to. So I bought myself a Sony Walkman and I bought, uh, bought one, I bought two cassettes, <laughs> Dire Straits and U2. <laughs> and uh, I bought U2, the Joshua Tree. Uh, that was the year it was released, 87. And um, and then we get into Angola and we're driving around in the bush in these macro, it's a mobile microwave oven, a rattle, right? It's a six mm. wheeler, it's just like it's it's carries it's designed to carry ten troops on either five on other side. The, the 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 gunner in the turret, the corporal or the lieutenant next to the gunner in the turret, the driver at the front and the anti-air gunner at the back who's, you know, manning a twin barrel machine gun for any air attack. And um, I was in the lieutenant's car, so I had the whole side to myself because a week after we got into Angola, we had to send my number two home, bless him, but he just couldn't handle it. He was a very, very um, innocent, sweet boy who came from a very conservative background, and he just mm. couldn't handle it. So we had to send him home. So I had the whole side to myself with a medic on the other side. I packed all my mortar bombs, four that came in cases of four. I packed them up to the same level as the bench, made a blanket, made it out, laid back and to you 2 on my Sony Walkman, sweating like a pig. And um, we couldn't open any hatches because, uh, you know, we are driving through the bush. There's no roads. In fact, once… A boom slung, which is a tree snake, directly translated boom slung. also one of the most poisonous snakes in the world. Mm. And driving through the bush, in the the, the, the the one of the lieutenants was in a tank. The the tree fell out of the out of the bush out of the tree. The snake, I should say, fell out of the tree and bit the lieutenant, and he he died 20 minutes later. So we had to drive around with our hatches closed, and it was boiling hot, as you imagine. We're playing cat and mouse with the enemy, and next minute, the, I was lying back listening to you two. And uh, the medic jumped up white as a sheet, started throwing on his webbing. And I sat up and I took my earphones off and I said, what's happening? He said, listen. And I heard the ricochet of bullets on the outside of the vehicle. Then I heard an explosion. Then I heard the lieutenant screaming, get ready to get out. So I threw my webbing on and the doors opened. And I had like, I, had six, I mean, I know I'm going into a lot of detail here, but I'm just no, remembering. <laughs> but you know? but Alan, so had, Alan,
0: it's riveting. Please, please. I had
1: six magazines on my chest yeah? um, mm. Six magazines for my, for my R4 rifle. Uh my R4 was over my back. I had this this webbing on, which had uh I had 12 60 millimeter mortars in my webbing and I had my RPG seven with two rockets on my back, one <laughs> one rocket in the pipe and my my mortar, my 60 millimeter mortar in my left hand. Uh basically I had about 25 kilos on me, right? And I, I was super fit in that two-year period. because I, I just everything we did, running press-ups, everything, I I made sure I, I just I mean, I did more than was expected, and I became very fit. So as I was about to jump out of this thing, the lieutenant was already at the door. There's all kind of carnage going on. And what had happened in that moment, right, we ran into these four Russian T-55 tanks. They were olive green buried in the ground. The same tanks Mm -hmm. they're using right now in Ukraine, the Russians, same Mm -hmm. T-55s, and they were buried in the ground. Uh, We couldn't see them until we were on top of them. And we were in an upside-down U formation two miles across and a mile deep. And spread out, you know, every 50 meters uh, with our vehicles. Our tanks were all in the middle of our formation, and we were on the right flank. We were too far to the left, and we ran in. We did, well, I don't know. The logistics were off. The, the reconnaissance was was incorrect. Perhaps we ran into these four tanks, and we had 20 millimeter cannons. We were outgunned, and one of these tanks came out of the bush and fired a shell into the into the flank of the Charlie car. By that stage, the troops were already out. and but my friend. And Andre Tom and Franz Mullenbeck, Franz and Andre from Cape Town, with the driver and the gunner in that car, and they disappeared in a puff of smoke. They wouldn't have felt any pain, thank goodness. And the, and the rear gunner, oh. the anti-air gunner, although whose name I can never remember to this day. Um, the three of them would have been instantly uh, killed. And uh, that vehicle stood burning for like 36 hours, which is quite interesting because it's just metal. But inside mm. is two tons of ammunition. Anyway, the troops were out Whoa. and the carnage was happening. I, as I was jumping out of my vehicle, a bullet hit the door and ricocheted. I don't know where it went, but all I heard was the deafening sound in my right ear. It went, And my ear went like, it just, you know, the, I lost sound in my ear, in my right ear. And as I was going out, the lieutenant was coming back in and he pushed me back and he said, we're retreating. And so we jumped back and we retreated. And, uh. That lasted, I don't know, all of like two and a half minutes, right? And then the medic came running through the bush and uh, he came to our car and he said, I'm looking for someone who's got opposite blood. I said, yeah, that's me. He checked my belt and we ran off. I followed him through the bush and all the while there's mortars going off. There's a MiG-27 Russian fighter jet, dropped a bomb. There's explosions, there's rifle fire, there's tanks. It's crazy, right? It's deafening, people screaming. The medic disappeared over a ridge, uh, disappeared over the ridge, and I descended into the bottom of this massive crater in the earth uh, that had been created by one of those MiG 250-pound tw- bombs. Uh, but it was the perfect place to treat wounded soldiers out of the line mm. of fire. And the medic grabbed my arm, put a needle in my arm, and I watched this blood flowing out of my arm into this, you know, down this tube into the arm of the soldier lying on the ground. So I dropped it to my knees, and... I began to wave the flowers off his face. He's he had a beard and he was matted with blood and there was flowers everywhere. There were so many flowers in Angola. Oh my God! It's one thing I'll never forget. Just flowers everywhere, and um, the flowers were all over him. So I was trying to get them off his face and his beard, which was matted with blood. And then the back of his head was missing. It a, a shrapnel or something oh. had gone through the front of his head and been missing in the back of his head. And uh, and then I looked and I recognized him. He was my mate, and uh, from 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 uh, the Alpha platoon. And uh, yeah, he didn't make it. So then um and then that was my experience every other day. You know, we just inter- we played cat and mouse with the enemy. Every time we encountered them, we you know, we went into attack. We had to had to jump out of the vehicle and drop mortar bombs and fire rockets and um yeah, it was insane. Uh you know, it's forty years later now. Gosh, I can't believe it, no. Forty years later. Uh well, twenty twenty seven will be forty years um but
0: but, Alan, what but i can remember
1: it like you know like that you know and, and but it doesn't affect me anymore because i've done so much work around it you know and you ask me this question it's a long answer to your oh. question but you know coming out of that when i got shipped home in the 12th of december uh, I, I i um you know we flew out of angola and we flew back to a rehabilitation camp for a week spoke to psychologists got fresh socks and underpants that's all i really remember and um
0: well, it's interesting. It's interesting when In you watch shower. Yeah, when you said it, it was 40 years ago. But I was mm. gonna say the incredible detail, even the incredible detail when you were talking earlier about when you were a child and when mm. you remembered the kind of crisp shirts of the policeman, these things really traumatizing things really just imprint themselves so mm. deeply into our minds. But sorry, please continue. Yeah. So you so you were, yeah, I'm, I'm, so after but, yeah, this.
1: I'm, I've got yeah. a very, very good memory. Um, mm. You know, I've got a very—I I mean, I only realized I had a good memory long after I left school. You know, much to my parents' dismay, they said, "Where was that memory when you were at school?" <laughs> and uh, and obviously, my memory is is like you say, traumatizing experiences are deeply ingrained and we remember them. Um, a lot of us are not willing to go back to those experiences, so we bury them in our unconscious, or they get—you know—they get or we or we or we just—you know—they're suppressed. We don't even realize we've had them until maybe we do some regression or something. Um, but I've done a lot of work, so I can talk about it. It doesn't affect me anymore. You know, I wasn't able to talk about it for a long time, obviously. And when I came home, um, you know, uh, just before Christmas in 1987, and I was turning 21 on the 26th of December, and I was at home for my 21st birthday. And uh, I remember being with my parents. They had retired by this stage. They had moved out of the city down to the beautiful the beautiful south coast of Ubongo in Durban, South Africa. Um, and they had this beautiful little cottage, uh, you know, sea view. It was gorgeous. And I sat there. And I remember I didn't talk much. And, um, and then for the following six months, I drank myself to sleep, you know, in a, just drank myself into the bottom of a bottle, um, you know, every day. And um, because I was having nightmares, and I had my nightmares for about seven years. And then seven months after I was at home, um, I was going to the bottle store for my daily intake, mm. my daily sedative, six beers and a bottle of Mainstay Cane Spirit, uh, which is a bit like vodka made from sugar cane. And a white spirit. And um, as I was on my way home, I bumped into my friend Malcolm. Malcolm Aldrich. What a beautiful soul. Yeah, he's, he's no longer alive now on this planet. He's passed over. He, he was killed several years after that meeting in a car accident. But uh, he's an angel. You know, he was definitely mm-hmm. an angel for me. And we bumped into each other street. And he said, hey, where have you been? I said, hey, I've been in the army. He said, me too. He said, where were you? I said, ah, I was all over. I didn't want to tell him where I was. You know, I didn't want to tell anybody what I'd been doing and what I'd seen and done. I was really wracked with guilt. And plus I was also really, really conflicted because I'd been to two Catholic schools, Christian schools, You know, I had religious dogma from uh, from the age of four. I used to go to Sunday school. I didn't really buy into any of it, but it was in there. You know what I mean? It's like mm. programmed into, you know, and, uh, and now it was like, I was taking acid. I was getting high every day and I took acid and I was had these bad trips. And I, even one day I had this like six hour trip with the devil and, God, we fighting over my soul. It was like intense, fully 4D experience. Anyway, so I said, I've been all over. He said, hey, you know where I've been, Alan? I've been in a helicopter flying into Angola, into uh-huh. the civil war there that's been raging for years and years. He said, man, yeah. we, nobody even knows we're there. We're not even supposed to be there. And we, I'm landing in this war zone and I'm taking these dead soldiers and these wounded soldiers back to the one military hospital in Pretoria. I've been doing that for the last year. I said, yeah, I was on the front line of that op. I just came home, you know, at the, in December. He said, what? On the front line? He said, man, how did you even survive? He said, mm-hmm. he grabbed mom, arm. He said, come with me. Went up to his flat and we drank some beers and smoked some some marijuana and we talked for hours and hours and hours. And he said to me, he said, listen, you've been through an SEE, a significant emotional event. He said, you need to learn how to process that experience. Otherwise, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to hurt you. He said, it's probably really hurting you, probably having, you know, flashbacks and nightmares. He said, I'm sure you're probably going to have some post-traumatic stress. Of some kind that's going to begin to, you know, um, begin to manifest in you. And he said, um, you need to understand how to process it, and you need to develop your psychology and all these things. He was saying to me, I'd never heard anything like this before. I didn't understand what he was saying at the time. I said, what are you even saying? I don't understand what you're saying. Slow down a bit. He said, well, he said the best thing you can do. He said you can read. You must read good literature, and that's going to help you. So I said, well, I don't like to read. I wasn't a good, good I wasn't good at school. I wasn't a student, you know, I failed my way through. Uh, He said, You're going to like reading this. Trust me. So he turned around and he grabbed the book from behind him. Not a bookshelf like this, it was just a pile of books, very untidy, Mm -hmm. all just thrown (laughs) all over the place. But he grabbed the book and he put it in my hand. He said, Read this book first. He said, "Uh, Make notes while you're reading and carry the notes around with you so that if you find yourself out and about, he was really wise, right? You were 21 years of age. Malcolm was probably the most emotional. We were wow. 21 and he was 21. in 1988. He was 21 in 1988, same age as me. And, we, and, and, and you know, for he, I'd never met somebody more emotionally mature than him. And he said to me, this is the book you're going to start with. Make some notes, carry the notes with you. And then whenever you need to read them, read them. And I looked at the book and it said, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill. And I turned the book over, read the back flap. And I said, wow, this sounds interesting. He said, trust me, you're going to love it. And I took the book and I read it. And I did love it. I read it three times, and um, and what it did for me is it it really, I became like like too much, you know, after I read that book. My dad used to say to me, Alan, calm down. You know, you're in people's faces. You're, people, you're too intense, man. And um, I was like, but,
0: Alan, I was, but I was. Really? Really, Alan?
1: I was, I was already, I'd been diagnosed ADD when I was a young kid and, yeah. and the doctor wanted to give me a and my mother refused, thankfully. Dude, but dude. I also was diagnosed with bipolar and I was diagnosed with, as, as um, clinically depressed. Mm. And I was suicidal. And I was high all the time and taking acid and, you know, just, it was crazy. I was smoking marijuana all day, every day, drinking from the moment I woke up, you know, and just, mm-hmm. I was really unhappy and well, I was trying well, to process this shit. And then I read Think yeah. of Go Rich, right? And then I was thinking, oh my God, Think and Go Rich, you can, whatever your mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. And I was riding around mm-hmm. on my bicycle at three, four in the morning, talking to homeless people, telling them, you can change your life. You can change your life. <laughs> That <laughs> was crazy, right? Crazy time. Anyway, that was the beginning of my journey that leads me to this day. Because what I did was I became really, really. I became obsessed with learning. You know, I just thought, wow, this is important. Why didn't I? Why, why didn't I start learning this when I was a kid? And then I remember my dad actually did take to me at sixteen, he said, "You need to read." Think. He said to me, "Read this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, by Dale Carnegie," and he yeah. said to me, "And read this book called Consciously Creating Circumstances by." a guy whose name I can't remember right now, but it was only a thin book like this. And he said, these books are going to help you when you're older. And I said, okay, thanks dad. I didn't read them. But later in my twenties, I read how to win friends and influence people. And I told my dad, I said, thanks for that book that you recommended when, you know, all mm. those years ago, I finally read it. Well, that I became says, this that's, avid reader. that's it.
0: You weren't ready at 16, yeah, but you exactly. were ready yeah. at 2021. 20, and,
1: yeah. and I became this avid reader and I read every book that Malcolm had. And then 18 months later I left South Africa and I came to England and the very first book I bought when I arrived in London at Victoria Station at WH Smith was Tony Robbins' Unlimited Power. Mm. And I read the back flap of Unlimited Power and it said Tony Robbins is America's foremost um, peak performance coach, a master of neurolinguistic programming. And I thought, what? Neurolinguistic programming? I thought that sounds interesting. I've got to read this book. And I, I love that book. And it was my introduction to NLP. And then Then I got involved in Landmark Education in 1994. I did the forum, and then I did all the programs. I trained to be the forum leader for, uh, trained to be a forum leader, and then I took Landmark to South Africa. I started doing introductions in South Africa, and I got people on the first forum in Cape Town. And then I was going to be the forum leader for South Africa. And then in 1999, I was, you know, in place to, you know, to be the forum leader for South Africa, and I was really excited about it. And then I just, yeah, I, I changed direction. You know, I was. I was still you know, using, I, was, I had, by that stage I was addicted to cocaine. I always had a wrap in my pocket. And uh, I was working 12 hours a day, seven days a week at the bank, mm. Credit Suisse. I was really unhappy, like really, really unhappy. And um, I was making so much money, but I was always broke because I was just going up my nose. And I was out every Thursday to Sunday night. And I'd come back on a Monday morning, get showered, go to work without any sleep. And then I would sleep like the dead on Monday when I got home. I'd wake up Tuesday morning, go to work. Thursday night I would be out again. And that was my life. I was just, um, you know, I was uh, distracting myself from my demons, you know, that were raging mm-hmm. in my head. And I had a, just voices all day long in my head. And, and you know what made it even more difficult, Carolina, is I had all these books in my head, right? I'd mm-hmm. been to all these talks at St. James Church in Piccadilly. I was listening to cassette tapes and then CDs, then DVDs I was watching. I was reading, reading, reading. And, um, my, and I had developed an. I mean, I realized that it's an amazing memory. And uh, so I can recall passages and quotes and all kinds of things. I can remember people's names and, but I wasn't doing anything with it. So I was frustrated, right? It was, Mm -hmm. and then I, then, and I used to listen to Jim Rohn say, nobody can do your press ups for you. You need to do your own press ups. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, you know, I saw, I was at the bank one day and I saw an advert for Tony Robbins was coming to Cardiff, Wales in July of 1999. It was May at the time. Mm. And I remember, I remember that Tony had come to the UK in 93 and 96, but I wasn't ready, but I was ready in 99. And so I bought a ticket. A friend of mine actually bought me the ticket uh, because I couldn't pay for it myself. And uh, two months later, I went to Cardiff, Wales. And when four days before the event, I said to myself in the mirror, I said, Alan, you need to get sober. You can't go to of High and drunk. Mm. You, need, you need to be straight. You need to sober up and be there consciously, you know, so you can absorb this training because this is – basically it was – in my mind it was my last chance to really turn things around because I was from – from the time I entered the, the Landmark Forum in Paddington Hotel in, in, in Hilton, Hilton, Paddington, and David Dua came to the front of the stage, and within five minutes I thought, I want to do what this guy does. You know, because I'd been reading for years, and I and and I and I really thought, wow, I really understand this information. I was really understanding my own psyche. I was really understanding my
0: own my own programming. I began to understand people. Well, it's it's interesting though, isn't it, Alan? Because when you're talking about this, what's really striking me is that you can you can absorb all of this information, but until you actually do healing, really deep healing on yourself, it's you know, it's just information, isn't it? It's yeah, just absolutely. stuff that you absolutely. have.
1: It's just knowledge, and it's just knowledge, and, and 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 you know, I think that's what frustrated me is I had I was I had all this knowledge, and I could arrogantly code to you and tell you what to do, and mm. I was arrogant, and I was very confrontational, I was very conflicted, so I was really really intense, and I never smiled, and uh, I had this, I was very self conscious, and I had these very destructive beliefs about myself, uh, but my saving grace came. Uh, which leads me to the answer to your question eventually, is that you know I found myself in July in Cardiff sitting in front of Tony with 1,500 people. I was sitting at the back on the left of the room and uh, listening to Tony. And from the moment he came on stage, I was just – I was glued. You know what I mean? I wrote everything down, and I just watched him, and I thought, wow, this is the best speaker I've ever seen in my life. I mean, this guy's insane. His energy resonated with me because he had the same intense energy, and he was super smart. And I just thought, wow, this guy's awesome. Like I just, I just. Yeah. Well, he's you know, a giant. He's a giant, yeah. isn't he? And, and he's phys- so big. This, absolutely. Physically,
0: he's a giant as well, isn't he? He's, he's so big and his
1: aura is so big. And, and, you know, I just fell in love with him, you know, as a human being. I just thought, wow, this guy's amazing. Right. And I just wrote everything down. And then on the third day, there was an exercise that takes place in the workshop. And it's a very intense exercise on the third day. It's a, like a four or five hour exercise. And I came out of that exercise feeling very different to the person that went into that exercise five hours earlier, like physically different. And, um, and next minute I had the microphone and I was talking to Tony and I said, Hey, Tony, I love you so much. I've been listening to you for nine years on cassette. I said, I've read all your books. Mm. I said, I'm a huge fan. I said, you've saved my life so many times. Even before I got to this room today, this weekend, you've saved my life numerous occasions just Mm. by listening to you, you know, at, at times of darkness, when I really felt I wanted to go and jump under a train. I would put you in, in the cassette player and listen to you say, this too shall pass, you know, yeah. and I'd rewind that over and over. And, uh, and then I said, I love you so much. I said, man, I I left everything in this exercise. I left it all there on the floor. I actually drew a line. I stepped over it. I, I left it all there. And I realized that my belief system is, is really, you know, eating me from the inside. And it's my belief system is What's killing me, my perceptions. And, uh, I said I've been holding on to a lot of shit from a. I've been holding on to a lot of stuff from when I was a kid, and I said especially something that happened to be 13 years ago. I was in Angola, uh, you know, at war for South Africa uh, in the Angolan civil war, and I said I killed, I killed a lot of people, you know, um, I, you know, I was, you know, it was my duty, you know, and I, I did my duty, and I said, but, but it's been eating me alive, you know, and I buried it under alcohol and drugs, and, and, and that, and that came after a whole lot of other stuff when I was a kid, you know, I've been. You know, I buried a lot of stuff and I said, it's been eating me up. And I said, but I left it there and I really feel like I shifted something today. And I said, I just want to say thank you. I love you so much. And Tony was crying by this stage and he came down off the stage and he started walking towards the back where I was. And I climbed down from the chairs and I ran down the aisle towards him (laughs) and I was running and about three feet away from him, I took off and I jumped onto him and he caught me and I wrapped my arms and my legs around him, you know, like a monkey. (laughs) I took off about three feet away, right? And I jumped and he caught me. I wrapped my arms, my legs around him and he held me. And then eventually I put my feet down and he grabbed my head with his big hands, right? These big banana fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and I stood, I stood like this, you know, and I, I, I was in a trance, obviously. And um, he just, you know, honestly, I'll never forget it. I can see it right now. You know, he just, he, he, it was like, he poured love into me through his eyes. I mean, he's like mm-hmm. intense human being and he's got, his intention is really powerful and really pure and he really wants to serve human beings and people who don't know him and give him a hard time. It's only because they don't know him. I mean, I know him personally, you know, I've, I've, I've been with him 24 years since that moment, actually. Um, I've been in his environment 24 years straight now and I've had several conversations with him and he's a, he's just a beautiful human being. Um, and he's driven to serve people at the deepest level. You know, he, his mm. mission is to end suffering for human beings. That's a big mission. That's like a Jesus Christ mission, you know? And, mm. um, anyway, he poured this love into me, and he said to me, "Alan, everybody deserves a second chance, even you. Take the lessons, let the shit go, let the rest of it go. Just take the lessons. There are lessons there." He said, "Stop whooping yourself. It's time to stop doing that." He said, "It's time to let love, you know, fill you up. You know, time to let love into your heart." He said, um, "You know, you deserve it. You know, you deserve to create a magnificent life. You know, don't let the past define you." And then he he, he turned me around to face the room. And the love from the—I mean, then I, I was oblivious to everyone else until that moment, and then—and then I saw these fifteen hundred people all on their feet and they're cheering, and the love hit me like a truck, and I actually fell against them. I dropped to my knees and I sobbed like a baby, and everything that I'd suppressed, you know, it was like a physical, like a physical release. There was a spiritual transformation taking place right there, and a healing that just—it was a healing that was catalyzed in that moment. And I mm-hmm. remember thinking, you know, I was thirty-two years of age at that moment. Wow, and. I'd never ever felt loved unconditionally by any other human being other than Tony Robbins in that moment. That was the first time I ever felt unconditional love from another human being. And this was a stranger, a man, a six foot eight masculine man who didn't know me from a bar of soap and he loved me uh, in spite of the fact that I'd shared my deepest, darkest secrets with him, you know? And, well,
0: um, Alan, I was going to say, and also 1500 other people, you know, it's it's a huge thing, isn't it? That that burden and that. Well, release. I, yeah,
1: absolutely. It was a massive release. I mean, <clears throat> it just spontaneously
0: happened.
1: <clears throat> it spontaneously what, happened. Well,
0: I think I think also there is so much. And this is one thing when I've talked to my other guests that. That in certain sorts of similar situations, it's it's shame. There is so much we attach. Our our shame silences us. Shame about things we've done. We think that this shame, people are going to judge us. And to be able to actually go, I'm going to let go of the shame. I'm going to let go of everything and let go of all of the shit. My God, that's immense. Yeah,
1: I, I yeah, absolutely. I had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, you know. And shame is the lowest vibrating emotion on the map oh. of consciousness, and it's really, and it's it's it's, you know, shame is directly associated with self annihilation, you know, and um, where we literally do annihilate ourselves, you know, from the inside out. And uh, that was a ma- you know, it was a massive turning point for me at that moment, you know. And later that day, I went to the back of the room and I enrolled in all the programs that Tony was offering, the Mastery Package, which was going to cost me ten grand all in. I didn't have the money, but I knew that I needed to do mm-hmm. the programs because I knew that I had got so much out of that weekend in Cardiff, Wales, like so much. My life completely changed in four days. I arrived there four days sober and I left there without, you know, with no intention to get high ever again and drunk ever again. And no, and I never even missed it after that. I didn't have any withdrawals or anything. In fact, I'll tell you a little story just now. Well, I'll come back to that story. This is a very mm-hmm. good fucking Oops. Apologize the yeah, no, Don't, don't great, worry. A, don't worry. I swear it, lots. It, it's a great ahead. learning for people who are listening to this. When I come back to that story. However, I enrolled for these programs. It was going to cost me 10 grand. I knew that I needed to do them because I knew that I was going to get loads more out of this teaching. So, it's, uh, Considering I got so much out of that four day weekend in Cardiff, I knew that it was going to be so much more available for me. And I made a way, I found a way to make it happen. And I set myself a target. I said, I'd love to be a trainer for this guy one day. You know, Imagine that. And, um, And, you know, in subsequent years, I became a trainer. And after doing all the leadership and the mastery programs, uh, you know, I found myself two months later after Cardiff in, in July, two months later in September, I was in Hawaii doing the next program called Life Mastery. It was nine days. It was in paradise. I had an amazing, amazing spiritual experience there on the second day. A really beautiful blessing. Um from the other side, from the soldiers that I killed. you know, I asked them. I invoked the spirits of the soldiers that I killed to come and bless me. And I, and I really got a blessing in that moment, sitting next to a waterfall at 3 o'clock in the morning on my own in this beautiful paradise. And I started talking to God and I said, you know, I've had two amazing months. You know, I'm sober two months. Uh, you know, I'm just feeling great. My life has changed so much in the last two months. I, I started going to the Yes Group meetings here in London on the last Wednesday. I was there. You know, in July, we did the UPW in July, that year 99. I went to the meeting that end of that month in July. And then I went again in August. And then in September, I'm in Hawaii. And I'm sitting next to this waterfall. And I, I said, I know I need to, what I'd like to do is invoke the spirits of the soldiers that I killed and come, so they can bless me and forgive me, so I can take my, my self-forgiveness to the next level. And the whole place started vibrating, right? And the colors got brighter. My senses got sharper. And it felt like someone came behind me and wrapped a blanket of love around me. And I began to sob with relief. And um, and next minute, in that moment, the surface of the lagoon that was below my feet, three feet below my feet, I sat on the side of the, on the bank of this lagoon and the surface of the water broke and a turtle popped out, an old turtle, a big old turtle <laughs> popped out. His head popped out and he looked straight at me in the eyes. We looked at each other for like three to four seconds and he took a breath of fresh air and then he disappeared under the water. And I thought, wow, that's my answer, right? There I got my answer. You know, and I just I cried from joy. And then uh, it was such a beautiful night. I ended up lying in a hammock down by the water, talking to God for, for a couple of hours. Then I went for a run at uh, five thirty in the morning, the sun was coming up. I ran, I ran, ran I was running along this jogging path and I came around the corner and I I stopped dead in my tracks and there was this hundred foot Buddha. Oh, like a hundred foot Buddha looking out to sea. I thought, Oh my god, there was nobody else around. So I went and sat in front of the Buddha and I gave thanks and I cried with gratitude. I counted all my blessings. I went back to the hotel, got ready, and uh, went into had breakfast, went into the room and Tony came on the stage, started the day. There was about seventeen hundred people in this beautiful, beautiful room in this beautiful resort. And uh, Tony came on the stage, started talking, and he said, Okay, today's the first day of emotional mastery. And then he said, Who would like to share something? And I jumped out of my seat like a jack in the box. It was instantaneous. I didn't even think it. It just happened. I jumped out of my seat. I said, me, me, me. I'd like to share something. He said, give that man a microphone. <laughs> and the microphone came to me and I paused. My team was going crazy because each team has a banner and you have a, you have a chant, you know, yeah. you have a name. And my team was team 30. I had a cap on at the time and I remember it had 30 on the side. And I remember thinking, wow, oh. synchronicity. Right? And, I, and my team was going crazy because I was the first person to get called on team 30 chanting. And then I paused and I waited for to die down with it. I said, Tony, can I make an unreasonable request before I uh, share? And he looked at me, he smiled, he said, what's your unreasonable request? I said, can I come to the stage and share? And then the whole room went crazy, right? And then, he, <laughs> so then he laughed, he said, yeah, come up here. He obviously <laughs> remembered me from two months before, right, in, in, in yeah. Cardiff, and I ran up on the stage, gave him a high 10, gave me a hug. And then I went to the front of the stage, he stepped back, very gracious, you know, he, gave, he gives, when he invites people on the stage, he gives mm. in the stage, right? And then I stepped forward, and I remember thinking in my head at the time, I remember thinking it was 1999 and in 94 when David Ewer came on the stage I said, I'd love to do that, right? I'd love to do what this guy does. Mm. I've been reading. I love the subject of psychology. I, I think I could do this. And then when I said, I'd love to do this, I remember a voice in my head said, ah, but I can't do this. I'm not good. I'll never be able to do this. I don't have the ability because I had low self-belief, right? Low self-esteem. Mm. Now it's 1999 and I've been thinking about getting on a stage and speaking and I've been like, looking into it and researching and studying it. And now suddenly I'm on the stage in front of 1,700 people in Hawaii. And in my head, I thought, wow, I'm giving my first talk here. This is amazing. And then I said, I've got to tell you guys a story about yesterday. And I said, I've got to tell you what happened after the day's event yesterday. My mm-hmm. team went to the room next door. We rebounded on this trampoline. I drew a picture of Africa. I put all these different colored people on the continent of Africa. I drew myself standing at the top talking to them. And I wrote five words, leadership, love, unity, peace, and transformation around the continent of Africa. And I said, I've always had this dream for a long time now. Not always. I've had it for a while now that I would really love to make a difference, you know, because I've changed my life quite considerably over the last two months since I was in Cardiff two months ago. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, my life is changing so rapidly. I said, I want to get involved in the transition that's taking place in my country. And I told him about how I went at the room after the rebounding and I went and I met this turtle and I, you know, and I had this amazing spiritual blessing from these soldiers that I killed. And then I ran and I found this Buddha. I told him Everything. And I came, I said, and now I'm finding myself on the stage sharing with you. And I said, I know for the first time, this is exactly what I said, right? I said, I know for the first time in my life, what I want to do with my life.